0: Hello everyone, thank you for joining us for episode 52 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case is set in Highley in Shropshire, here in England. And we start with the Whittle family. Leslie Whittle was born to her parents in 1957 in Shropshire. Her father, George Whittle, was the owner of Whittle Coaches, which, at the time, was one of the country's biggest private coach companies. In 1972, when Leslie was just 15, her father passed away. In his will, he left Leslie the handsome sum of £82,500, which, according to an inflation calculator that I sourced on Google, is roughly today's equivalent of £1.1 million. The Whittle family were well known in Shropshire for their wealth and successes with their private coach company and because of that, the death of George Whittle and the money he had left his daughter, son and wife was heavily reported on by the local news. A few years after George Whittle's passing, on the 14th of January 1975, Dorothy Whittle went to her 17-year-old daughter's room to wake her up because she hadn't come downstairs for breakfast. Dorothy knocked on Leslie's door, but there was no answer from her daughter, and so she walked in. To her surprise, she found that Leslie's bed was empty. Dorothy felt a bit panicked by this and quickly went downstairs to see if she had been in the lounge and that she'd just missed her. In the lounge, she came across three notes that had been placed on top of a box of chocolates. The notes had been punched out of a roll of Dymo tape, and they read, No please, £50,000 ransom to be ready to deliver. Wait for telephone call at Swan Shopping Centre telephone box, 6pm to 1pm. If no call, return following evening. When you answer, give name only and listen. You must follow instructions without argument. From time you answer, you are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. The second note read, Swan Shopping Centre, Kidderminster, deliver 50000 in a white van. And the third note read, £50,000 in all old notes, £25,000 in £1 notes and £25,000 in £5 notes. There will be no exchange. Only after £50,000 has been cleared will victim be released.
1: God, how bizarre and specific.
0: Mm -hmm. So Dorothy quickly called out to Ronald, Leslie's brother and her son. Now being the man of the family, Ronald made the executive decision to call the police despite what the notes had warned. The police instructed Ronald to take the ransom money as directed and they said that they'd hang back and would be on the lookout for the kidnapper. Unfortunately, this plan was thwarted by a local reporter who got a hold of the story and sold it to a local radio station. This radio station, with no regard for Leslie's safety, reported the entire thing. They explained how Leslie had been kidnapped, how the police had been called and how the decision had been made to pay the ransom.
1: Is that not quite suspicious that a local reporter randomly gets hold of this? Like, obviously, I don't know, maybe someone in the police has, like, spilled. But actually, I find it quite unlikely that something so serious, uh, like a reporter in a bloody village, would just happen to stumble across. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do know what you mean. But I think you've got to consider it more, like, because they're almost, like, the equivalent of like a local celebrity in that area like they're so well known it's such a prestigious family um and i think probably i, pr- I think probably that someone in the police pr- did leak it to the press um for a bit of backhanded money or something like that but i mean later on as we like go on to see the police get really really shafted for how they handle this investigation so i don't think it's unlikely that the police were kind of involved in this right okay So this release to the media forced the police and Ronald Whittle to change their tactics. They decided to not send in Ronald Whittle for fear that the perpetrator had heard the news report and thought that he had been set up. A police officer did sit outside the phone box referenced in the ransom notes, however, and it did ring shortly after midnight. But because the police had changed their minds on letting Ronald Whittle go to the phone box, nobody was there to answer the call. What?
1: That seems insane. Mm-hmm. I'd assumed that a police officer would answer instead.
0: Presumably they thought that maybe the perpetrator was like watching the phone box or something like that and it would have been too obvious. Again, because Ronald Whittle was very well known and, you know, he'd been in the newspaper and things like that, like his whole family had, uh, people would have, or the perpetrator would have or might have known that it wasn't him at the phone box.
1: Just seems bizarre though that they just, there was no attempt made to communicate. Like the moment you see the phone still actually rings just seems odd then that yeah I don't know I can't see any logic
0: oh no no I don't think there is either no I completely agree with you I don't think there is any logic behind it at all um so all of this kind of what I'm saying now does sound like it's happening incredibly fast and that's because it was this all happened on the first night that Leslie had been taken so on the second night of her abduction Ronald Whittle received a phone call telling him to go to another specific rendezvous point When he got there, he received another call telling him to go to another spot, and this kind of wild goose chase continued for half the night before Ronald realised that he was going around in circles. On the third night, Ronald heard his sister's voice for the first time since she'd been abducted. He received a phone call which had Leslie's voice on the other end telling him to go to a phone box in Kids Grove. Ronald drove to the Bridge North Police Station, which was close to Kidsgrove, and there he was briefed by a Scotland Yard detective chief superintendent. He drove to Kidsgrove, followed by several unmarked police cars, but he got lost twice on the way. When he eventually arrived at the phone box, it was almost three o'clock in the morning, and it took him another 30 minutes to locate the message that was hidden in the box. The message told him to go to Bathpool Park and wait for a signal from a torch, he drove to Bathpool Park and waited, but no signal ever came. After this, no phone calls demanding ransom money came, and the trail went completely cold. On the 7th of February 1975, the Staffordshire Police undertook a cursory search of the park, but nothing was found. Three days later, on the 10th of February, the news blackout imposed on the case was lifted, When the news broke in the media, members of the public started coming forward with random items that they'd found in the park. These included a pair of binoculars, a pair of gloves and a piece of tape. Unfortunately, none of these led to any leads. While Scotland Yard was still searching for Leslie, the local police were busy searching for a man nicknamed the Black Panther. The Black Panther had been a man who had been robbing sub-post offices at gunpoint across the north of England. If you don't know, sub post offices in England are smaller local post offices that offer fewer services than a normal main branch post office, and they're often lived in by the postmasters there. Um, So usually they're kind of like family run post offices where the families live either on top of or to the side of the post office. Between 1967 and 1974, 19 sub post offices in Lancashire and Yorkshire had been raided by a masked armed robber. For the first few years, the Black Panther's gun had been a prop of sorts. However, on February 15, 1974, he shot and killed postmaster Donald Skepper in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. The Black Panther had raided Donald Skepper's post office and had tied up his 18-year-old son whilst Donald and his wife lay asleep in their bed. Donald awoke to the commotion downstairs in the post office and went downstairs and attempted to apprehend the robber. The masked robber shot at Donald Skepper, and, as he lay dying on the floor, the robber fled the scene without taking any money from the cash register. Donald Skepper passed away as a result of his bullet wound. The police interviewed more than 30,000 people in the search for the Black Panther, but their searches revealed nothing. The Black Panther didn't strike again for seven months, and when he did, he killed again. On September 6th, 1974, he broke into a sub-post office in Accrington in Lancashire. The owner of this post office, Derek Aston, woke to find an intruder in his bedroom. He began to fight the intruder off, at which point the gun went off and Derek Aston sustained a gunshot wound. Mrs Aston, who had woken up during the struggle, said that whilst her husband lay dying on the ground, the intruder fell backwards down their stairs. She said, though, that he can't have been that injured because he'd managed to get up and flee the scene. Derek Aston was rushed to hospital, but sadly he died as a result of his injuries. Of course, the police linked this killing to the killing of Donald Skepper in Harrogate, and the search for the Black Panther continued. However, he didn't strike again for another two months. On the 11th of November 1974, in Langley, in the West Midlands, Postmaster Sidney Greyland heard a knock at his back door. He went to open it and he was confronted by a hooded man carrying a torch and a bottle. The hooded figure held up the bottle towards Sidney's face and went to spray it. Nothing hit Sidney. Instead, the hooded man leapt backwards and it appeared that he had sprayed the contents of the bottle into his own face rather than Sidney's. Oh my God! He yelped and pulled his hood off, revealing his face. By this time, Sydney's wife had come to the door to see what was going on. Panicked that both Mr. and Mrs. Grayland had now seen his face, the hooded man pulled out his gun and shot Sydney. He then launched himself into their home and attacked Mrs. Grayland, before raiding the post office safe and fleeing with £800, which is about £6,500 in today's money. Sidney Grayland died as a result of his gunshot wounds, and Mrs. Grayland suffered severe skull fractures. She did survive, however, and she was able to give a description of the man's face to a sketch artist for the police.
1: I wonder why he never shot her.
0: Yeah, that's so true, actually, I don't know. So, the police were convinced that it was the same man undertaking all these attacks because identical bullets were found at each crime scene. However, none of the sketches from any of the survivors looked similar to each other. On the 14th of January 1975, the same day that Leslie Whittle was kidnapped, A security guard named Gerald Smith was shot when a hooded man had attempted to raid a security depot he worked at. Gerald Smith was taken to hospital and had surgery and months of rehabilitation to try and undo the damage that the shotgun bullet had done to his internal organs. The police failed to notice that a green car was left outside the security depot for eight days, but eight days after the shooting, and eight days after Leslie had been kidnapped, the police searched the vehicle. Inside, they found a sleeping bag, a gun, a few torches, bullets, a Dymo tape and a tape recorder that played Leslie Whittle's voice. What the police also discovered was that the gun and the bullets found in the car matched the weapon that the postmasters had been shot with. The police concluded that Leslie had been kidnapped by the man they were calling the Black Panther. This realisation stopped the police investigation dead in its tracks and forced them to change their tactics. Until this point, they had been convinced that Leslie had been kidnapped by someone hoping to extort the family for their money. The police had not believed that the kidnapper would actually go through with his threat of murdering Leslie. This discovery that Leslie's kidnapper and the Black Panther were one and the same kicked the police into action and they ordered a full search of Bathpool Park. Bathpool Park was the location that Ronald Whittle had been sent to where he was supposed to wait for the torchlight flashes, but he'd never seen them. At the time, senior crime officers from Scotland Yard had stated that they believed that the torchlight signal at Bathpool Park had been a hoax and they'd said that they would not search the park as there would be nothing to find. On March 7th, 1975, almost two months after Leslie's abduction and two full days of searching the park, Staffordshire Police, undertaking a full search of Bathpool Park, found Leslie's body. The scene was enough to break even the seasoned Scotland Yard officers working on the case. One detective came across a 60-foot-deep drainage shaft, and he climbed down the ladders to see if Leslie was in there. Leslie's naked body was found hanging in the drainage shaft. A wire cable was tied around her neck, and her feet were only inches from the floor. God. It was clear that she had been wired up to a ledge, and the thoughts on what she must have gone through during her days in captivity were overwhelming. It was freezing cold. It was pitch black. And the only sounds that could be heard was water running in the distance, rats scurrying around the shaft, and the occasional rumble of a train overhead. Due to the forensic testing that had to be carried out, Leslie's body was not lifted out from the deep drainage shaft for another 24 hours. The post-mortem revealed that she had been murdered within 48 hours of her abduction and the Whittle family were devastated by this news. If the police had searched the park at the time of her abduction, maybe she would have been found alive.
1: But that's insane. So then half of like, some well, some of the communication with the person who abducted her had happened after she'd died.
0: So it's interesting that you say that because I feel like the same, like on that 48 hours. To me, that makes it sound like when uh, Ronald Whittle was told to go to Bathpool Park. In my mind, I agree. I think that that means that at that point, Leslie would have already been dead, but that's not what kind of comes out of the trial. So I don't know if um, that kind of like 48 hours after abduction thing um, or comment from the uh, medical examiner is has been incorrectly reported or was incorrectly stated on on their report i really don't know but everywhere everywhere that i researched said 48 hours but as we kind of go on to see i think it's probably more likely to be more like 72 hours or something like that because um of why they think that she was killed um it doesn't really fit into that timeline so yeah interesting that you raised that but kind of gonna go into it a little bit later So Ronald Whittle truly believed that his sister might still be alive had the police searched the park and he blamed the police fully and said it was unimaginable that there had been two police forces searching for the same man and that neither of them had found him yet. As a result of the investigation undertaken into the police forces following this case, the detective in charge of the case was demoted back to being a uniformed beat officer. There are conflicting reports on this fact, but it seems that the West Mercia Police were in charge of the overall investigation into Leslie's kidnapping and that they had not kept the Staffordshire Police up to date with their investigation. This was seen to be detrimental because the Staffordshire Police knew the area much better than the West Mercia Police and if they had been called in to help earlier, it's likely that Ronald Whittle would have arrived at Bathpool Park on time on that third night that he was meant to meet the kidnapper. The police continued to hunt for the Black Panther. They knew he was armed and dangerous, and by their calculations, he had killed four people by this point. The man remained at large for almost all of 1975, and he continued to rob post officers, although he didn't kill or physically hurt anyone else during those raids.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because f- from what you'd told me about like him and the post officers, I'd originally kind of assumed that actually he didn't really want to kill people when you mentioned that he never killed Uh, the wife, but instead attacked her, I kind of thought, okay, well, actually, um, and I'm not defending him here, by the way, but I'm saying that it kind of sounded to me like maybe he felt like he couldn't have killed a female, etc. But then from what you've said about Leslie's, like the way Leslie's body was found, actually, that's a much more morbid and cold-blooded way to kind of kill someone, isn't it? And like, keep her captive, like you could keep a hostage captive in your house. Do you know what I mean? You don't doesn't need to be as as horrible as that. So it's interesting to see, like, yeah, the two different sides of this offender.
0: Yeah, completely. And I think that's what was so difficult for the police to kind of wrap their heads around was that they thought the Black Panther was obviously like this like cold blooded killer. But then actually you are right when you look into kind of all of it it was more like the killing was a means to an end, wasn't it? Rather than he wanted to go out and murder someone. It was more like he did that because he wanted the end game, which was the money in those situations. And then, yes, the... the yeah, st- like he's
1: robbing robbing post officers. Like, he's not serial killing people shooting banks. And I'm not saying one's worse than the other, but it just feels to me like he's gone from being kind of a middle-of-the-road robber, then he's murdered people. But in all of the instances, it sounds like really, because... They went, it went wrong, do you know what I mean? Like, mm. he got caught or someone saw his face. It wasn't that he went into these robberies and started off with by killing someone. But then, yeah, like you said, it seems really shocking then for him to suddenly be, you know, ransom, much larger sums of money and um, a complete disregard for a young girl, Leslie's, life.
0: Mm. Completely, completely. Um, And I think that's why it was so difficult to catch him, to be honest. So, um, yeah, the investigators searching for the quote-unquote Black Panther were nowhere near finding him when he was eventually arrested in December 1975. So he was arrested in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire by two uniformed officers who just happened to be passing by a post office when they noticed a hooded man attempting to break in. The officers called the man over to their patrol car and asked him what he was doing. The man acted friendly, but as he neared the patrol car, he pulled out a shotgun. He aimed the gun at the officers and told one of the officers to get into the back seat. The man then got into the passenger seat, aimed his gun at the other officer in the driver's seat and told him to drive to Blidworth, a village about five miles east from where they were in Mansfield. As they were driving, the officer in the back noticed that the man with the gun had turned to stare out the window and that he'd taken his eyes off his gun. The officer lunged forward and pushed the top of the gun upward so it was aimed at the roof of the car. The officer who was driving slammed on the brakes and both officers and the man began wrestling for the gun. In the struggle, the gun went off and blew a hole in the roof. The noise of this alerted two passers-by to the struggle and they ran over to help the officers apprehend the man. The man fought hard, hitting, punching and injuring the officers and passers-by, but he was outnumbered. They managed to get him out of the car and handcuff him to a handrail, whilst one of the officers phoned into the station for backup.
1: Oh my god, it's insane.
0: So at the station, the man refused to tell the police who he was for many hours, but eventually he did give his real name. The man was Donald Nielsen. The police tracked down Nielsen's address and searched his home in Bradford in West Yorkshire. It was only then that they could confirm that the man they had in custody was the Black Panther. The wire that had been found around Leslie's neck matched a roll of wire that Nielsen had in his home. There were also more guns, knives and bullets and the police also found a mini black figurine of a Black Panther. Upon this discovery and confirmation that Donald Nielsen was the Black Panther, the police pushed him for information about Leslie Whittle's kidnapping and murder. Donald Nielsen denied any connection to Leslie Whittle for about 12 hours but then he cracked and confessed to Leslie's murder, as well as the killings of the three postmasters. He said that he had never meant to hurt Leslie and that her death had been an accident, and he also said that the deaths of the postmasters had also been accidents too. Three months after his arrest, Gerald Smith, the security guard who Nielsen had shot, died as a result of complications from his bullet wound, The law at the time stated that Nielsen could not be charged for his death, however, because he had survived for over a year since the shooting. Donald Nielsen's trial began on June 14th, 1976, and it was a huge public event. The court heard how Donald Nielsen had been born Donald Nappy in 1963, and that he was 40 years old at the time of the trial. His first job had been when he was just a teenager, working as a builder, He married at the age of 19 and had a daughter in 1960. When his daughter was born, he changed his surname from Nappy to Nielsen as he had been bullied for the surname Nappy during school and he didn't want his daughter to have to go through the same fate. With a daughter to pay for, he soon realised that his building work was not generating enough income, so in 1965 he started burgling homes. His burglaries became known as being done by the and Bit Robber. Because he used a technique in which he used a brace and a bit to drill a hole in a window frame, and then he used a coat hanger to poke through the hole and open the catch on the doors. He attempted to put the stolen money into creating a taxi business, but this failed and he lost everything he had stolen. He realised that he wasn't making anywhere near enough money burgling tiny homes, and so he turned to armed robbery of bigger businesses. In 1967, he started robbing the sub-post offices, and the rest is what we already know. He killed three postmasters, and then he kidnapped Leslie Whittle. So if you can remember, right at the top of this episode, I mentioned that Leslie's father, George, had died and had left Leslie a large amount of money in his will, and that this was heavily reported on by the local media at the time. Well, Donald Nilsson had been reading the newspaper in 1972 and had seen that Leslie Whittle had been left over £80,000 by her father and this sparked an interest in him. He knew that if he kidnapped Leslie he'd be able to extort that money from her family. He used the same brace and bit technique to break into the Whittles' home and he silently kidnapped Leslie from her bed before leaving the pre-typed ransom note in the lounge. It's thought that Donald hadn't wanted to kill Leslie initially He had tied her up in that drainage shaft in Bathpool and had left her there with food and water. On the first night of her kidnapping, we know that he phoned the phone box as he said he would, but that nobody answered. On the second night, we know that he sent Ronald Whittle on a wild goose chase just to see if he was being followed by the police. On the third night, Ronald was meant to go to Bathpool Park and wait for the flashing torch signal. Remember that I said that Ronald had got lost on his way to the park and he hadn't arrived there until well after 3.30am? Well, Donald Nilsson had driven that route and had expected Ronald Whittle to arrive in the car park at 2.30am. So, at 2.30am when a car pulled into the park, Donald had flashed the torch at the car thinking that it was Ronald. Instead, it was a random couple who had just pulled over in the park. And after all this information about the case had come out, they'd gone to the police to say that they had seen the flashing torch signals and that they'd been very confused by it, but obviously hadn't thought much about it again until the information on this case came out. What they also said, however, was that shortly after the flashing of the torch happened, a police car pulled into the park. Once the police car pulled in, the torch signals stopped. The police have always strenuously denied that any officer was in the park at that time but the couple were adamant that they had seen a police car. It could quite easily just have been a beat officer pulling into the car park for arrest or whatever, but either way, it seemed that this caused Donald Nielsen to lose his control. He was convinced that he had been Ronald Whittle in the car and that he had been colluding with the police, and so, in a fit of rage, he went into the drainage shaft and pushed Leslie off the narrow ledge that he had her sitting on, this caused the wire that he had put round her neck to hold her just above the ground and she died as a result of the hanging. God, that is so, so sad. It's just horrendous. And it's kind of a contentious point. And I don't even know if it's worth mentioning, but I might as well. But from what I've read, there was a like police ban on anyone going to that car park um, because of they knew about this whole like meetup thing. And um, they'd all been told, like, you can't drive anywhere near there. Like, you're not allowed to even drive around the area unless it's like a police emergency, that kind of thing. And so when this couple kind of said, oh, like a police car was there as well, when this like torchlight was like flashing, you know, they went into full, almost like defending mode. And they said, no, we, no one went there. No one went there. But I mean, it, it does sound like possibly the police did kind of muck up there and someone obviously did drive in there which then just caused this kind of like complete rage in Donald Nielsen and I'm not blaming the police but obviously it is it is quite bad you know what I mean like this might have had a very different outcome had that ban been adhered to
1: yeah absolutely and yeah or him just be there on time or the first night had been handled differently I mean as with lots of these things hindsight is probably incredibly valuable but yeah I agree it's just so It sounds so close to having been such a very different ending that it kind of breaks your heart that the thought that, yeah, like, maybe actually the police were kind of culpable in it, in it going wrong.
0: Yeah, completely. And kind of adding to that as well, actually, that is, that's also kind of where the whole, uh, I guess, um criticism against the police came from was with regards to the whole two different police forces and that it was the Westmershire police kind of handling the whole setup and driving there and driving to the phone parks and finding that clue that said, Oh, you need to go to Bathpool Park. And actually if the Staffordshire police had been involved in that, then they would have been able to give them the correct route. But as it happened, Ronald was just driving kind of blind. He kept getting lost and that's why he arrived there so late again. So it's just, you know, it is so true. It's just awful, an awful set of events that seem to have just led to um Yeah, this happening, which of course I'm not blaming any of those individuals, it was solely Donald Nielsen who who is to blame for this, but it is just so, you are right, it just feels like it was so close to kind of being there on time and and maybe possibly just delivering the money and and then getting Leslie back.
1: Yeah, you do always, like, I always wonder though, in like hostage and ransom situations, like how often it actually does go right, do you know what I mean? Like what were the chances of Donald just walking away with the money completely scot-free and there being no onward consequences. Do you know what I mean? Like obviously he's a criminal, he's not there thinking about like the chance of it going well, like he's made a career out of doing dangerous stupid things. But do you know what I mean? Like you just kinda think, really, like did you ever think that you would be able to just let her go and it all be fine? Like you say, like, these were very notorious people in the area. The police were always going to get involved, realistically. It just, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it makes you angry, doesn't it? That it was like such a, like, just one man being greedy and not wanting to bloody earn his money.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's horrible to think that all of this has just come down to greed. No, I completely agree. So, at the trial, Nielsen was unanimously convicted of the four murders of Donald Skepper Derek Astin, Sidney Grayland and Leslie Whittle. He was given a life sentence for each murder and he was also given another life sentence for the GBH he inflicted on Sidney Grayland's wife when he had beat her so hard that he had fractured her skull. He faced no charges for the death of Gerald Smith due to the laws I mentioned earlier, although the laws have since changed and if this happened now, he definitely would have been convicted of something in relation to the harm he caused to Gerald. He was also convicted of kidnapping blackmail threatening to kill burglary possession of firearms and intent to endanger life
1: even though like a year passed from um him attacking the security guard to him dying why could he not be charged with like gbh for that one as well
0: I know it's so bizarre. And I don't really know. I mean, it's possible that that kind of came under the threatening to kill um, conviction that he had or the possession of firearms and the intent to endanger life conviction. It's possible that some of that was in relation to Gerald's death. But I just think, yeah, I'm not really sure that the laws in place, obviously, were very strange at the time. And, and subsequently, they have been changed. But yeah, you would think Even at that time, yeah, it could have been GBH or something, but I don't know. I mean, presumably for the police and the prosecution, it might not have been worth pursuing because he was facing all these other charges and he was getting life sentences for all of them. I don't know, but it does seem a bit unjust to Gerald and his family. Yeah. So the judge stated that in this case, life must mean life and that only great age or infirmity should be used as reasons to release Donald Nielsen. The Lord Chief Justice set a 30-year minimum term for Nielsen, but this was increased to a whole-life tariff by the Home Secretary at the time. In 2002, the Home Secretary was stripped of their powers to set minimum terms in criminal proceedings and therefore Nielsen's original 30-year term was restored. The jurors were all allowed to have an exemption from being called to jury service again for at least a decade as they had had to sift through so much graphic evidence as part of their duties being a jury on this case. In 1977, straight after his conviction, Donald Nielsen appealed his conviction for the murder of Leslie Whittle, but this was rejected and he did not try any other appeals. Nielsen was eligible for parole in 2006, but this was not granted. He was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2009, and on the 18th of December 2011, he died after suffering a chest infection and pneumonia. In total, he served over 30 years behind bars.
1: God, that is just such a heartbreaking case, isn't it? And I think so almost unusual for someone to get away with, like, his crimes for so long prior to Leslie's murder. Do you know what I mean? Like, he'd made so many robberies, and somehow, I guess, like, now, fortunately, with, like, the advent of, like, security cameras, etc., and better, like, DNA things, you'd probably hope somebody wouldn't get away with, like, a spree of crimes for as long as he did, and therefore would be kind of ideally like behind bars or like undergoing something before their crimes escalated to the point of like yeah taking a young girl hostage and asking for ransom and stuff like it's just one of those things where there's yeah it's a very sad very bleak case but I guess what I'm trying to say is I just hope that actually it wouldn't be able to be repeated now like and with everything we have available to us today.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely, I agree. It's a desperately sad case, and like you said earlier, I think you really summed it up earlier when you just said, like, all of this just for greed. It's unfathomable, really, isn't it? Yeah. So thank you all for listening to today's episode. Um, You can find us, as always, on social media at infraction.thepod. If you haven't given us a review yet, please do consider doing so. And if you want bonus content, um, then you can find us on Patreon slash infractionthepod. And yeah, I think that's everything. We'll see you soon for another episode. Bye. Bye.